It is a tremendous privilege and a genuine joy that we each have to come together this Lord's Day evening, having been blessed with such a beautiful day, things that express the handiwork of the great God of heaven, the things He has fashioned for our appreciation. And as we come together to focus attention on the power and wonder of His Word, and to in fact use that Word to challenge ourselves to live ever closer to the beautiful pathways that lead to eternal life. As has been mentioned already, we are blessed with a number of visitors and, of course, our regular membership, and we're thankful for each and every one and the presence that, that you have shown to be here with us today. If you are somewhat new to this series of lessons, you will notice that we are beginning part three of it, How to Study the Bible, part three. In this series of studies, our intent has been to list some principles that may be of benefit to us as we strive to be better students of the sacred text, as we seek to better appreciate and to fathom and to comprehend the character of what God has revealed. As we've done that, we have learned in part one of this lesson already, in, the, in this series I should say, some features about the importance of Bible study, the character and joy that's associated with it. Along the way, we came to understand that the character of the text itself is vitally important. Wasn't it Paul who said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works? That latter part of verse 17, being complete unto every good work, that idea does not come from men's ingenious revelation. Only by the sacred text and the application of it can you and I stand equipped completely to please and satisfy the God of heaven. Our intent has, then be, has been to become better students of the sacred text. We noticed along the way that several Bible helps could be very useful, such as an atlas or a concordance, perhaps even a commentary when used appropriately. We appreciated that the usage of them all the while was never a replacement for studying the Bible. It was only to aid us in unappreciating what God has revealed. We also noted most recently that a lexical emphasis was important. It is the words of the Bible. Wasn't it in fact the statement made by Jesus himself, the words that I speak unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. We read in the closing part of John, the fifth chapter. And thus, as we learned last week, the words themselves, we must never read into the Bible what we wish it said or what others may have told us it says. We must let God speak through His inspired Word. As we come to this third installment in the series, we will appreciate tonight two other aspects of effective Bible study. One is a step beyond the words themselves in that how do those words form sentences? What do the sentences mean? What's the emphasis and the character of them? And then also, what is the context in which those sentences appear? Tonight, as we use some Bible examples to study that, we will in fact see some interesting presentations, texts that you may never have looked at side by side. But as we do that, I think we'll each be drawn to a clearer appreciation of not only the sentences, but also the use of context in properly interpreting them. May I at this point make mention of why this particular study, this third installment, is of such benefit to us? We each are well aware 
that throughout the centuries and throughout the ages, the Word of God has often been criticized. It has often been alleged that it contains mistakes, absolute contradictions, and things which themselves simply cannot be. In fact, there have been those who have enlisted texts and said that these two contradict each other, and thus the Bible cannot possibly be truth. For truth obviously never contradicts itself. In fact, throughout the centuries of time, Thomas Paine and others have even written booklets that list these supposed contradictions. And they will simply list two verses and thus say, Aha! Those of you who believe in this Bible, it's a farce. It's a myth. These two verses can't both be right. From time to time, as those are mentioned, they will, of course, selectively use certain passages and texts, and we will not have time to look at very many, but we will look at two of them tonight. As we look at these passages, we will have an intent to look carefully at what the words themselves say, but at the sentences which are formed, and finally, at an interesting usage of the context that's to be found in each one of them. As we look at the first one, it will be in the Old Testament. I'd ask you to turn back with me then and look at an interesting passage, a set of them, in fact, found in the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament. As we turn back the clock and also turn back the page, go back with me to the days of both Micah chapter 4 and Joel chapter 3. And please read with me beginning, first of all, in Joel chapter 3. And let's read verses 9 and 10. I have also placed these passages on the screen for your ready reference, but we will begin reading in verse 9 of Joel chapter 3. We'll consider that one first. In this text, the writer of old made this remark, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles, Prepare war, make up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. I would ask that you especially make note of that phrase that was one of the last things that we just noted, where the prophet Micah said, Beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. And with that thought in mind, consider with me a verse found in the fourth chapter of Micah. In Micah 4, let me begin reading in verse number 1, and let's especially pay note to verse 3 once we arrive at it. And I have again selectively made note of one of the statements found in verse number 3. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then note with me verse 3, please. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. As you'll notice, one of the statements made in Micah's prophecy and in his especial statement was the following, verse 3. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
The interesting observation, of course, is that Micah's remarks are exactly opposite to Joel's. Whereas in the days of Micah and in the prophecy of Micah, he made note that they would beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Joel, on the other hand, and affirmed just the opposite. One might well make note that this appears to be a direct contradiction. And those who have attempted to allege that the Bible is simply a myth and that it is not a trustworthy and credible document have affirmed, well, there you have it. How can both of these statements possibly be true? How could it be the case that Micah would say to beat your swords into plowshares, your spears into pruning hooks, but Joel would say that the, spear, that the pruning hooks should rather be turned into spears? Well, the thought then might be the following. How would you and I, as effective students of the Bible, address this issue and seek to resolve it in an accurate and truly wonderful way? May I submit to you, and I've placed it in capital letters, that as we seek to consider the resolution, context will be the key. What do the context involve, and what's the situation concerning these sentences? First of all, let us begin by making note of the context of the Joel passage. The first one we read in Joel chapter 3, the book of Joel is a three-chapter book. It's nestled in the heart of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. But note with me some of the facets and features of that book as we set the stage for chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The book of Joel was written about 770 B.C. It was especially directed to the children of Judah, or that is, to the nation of Judah. In so doing, God had an especial message for His people. As Joel delivered that message, he was very strong and to the point. This was the message. God's people had proceeded to rebel against him and had basically walked away from him. They needed very seriously to consider their circumstance and return in faithfulness to him. To that point, in chapter 2, verse 13, he said, Rend your heart and not your garments. They needed to repent. They needed to come back lovingly and obediently to the God of heaven, and in that way they would again proceed to be the people pleasing in his sight. In fact, there was a devastating plague of locusts that had come over the area. It had eaten up everything in their path. Joel used that devastating plague to preach to them about the coming desolation in the day of the Lord that they would experience if they did not return to his side and faithfully to him. But as we arrive at chapter 3, the text we just read, God through Joel directs his attention to the enemy nations to Judah, to those people who were enemies to them and thus de desired their destruction. To them, God especially made note in the verses that we just read that they needed to prepare for war. They needed to appreciate the fact that the God of heaven was against them because they opposed his people and as such, they would su suffer severe punishment at the hand of God. All the while then in verse number 10, when Joel made note that they should in fact beat their plowshares into swords, a sword is a military armament. It is something offensively used in warfare. Thus, God through Joel said, my punishment is coming on you enemy nations, you Gentile nations, to my people. Notice in the context is very specific here. 
God was directing that message to the enemies of ancient Judah, and as such, they were in fact to be ready for war because it was soon to come. And history affirms the fact that did happen. But what about the Micah text? Is it talking about the same thing, and is it addressed to the same people? Consider the following with me. As we read that Micah text, it likely sounded exceedingly familiar, for it's almost quoted verbatim in the contemporary text in Isaiah chapter 2, when in fact the mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains, and all nations would flow to it. The law would go forth from Jerusalem, all of that was a prophecy of the coming establishment of the church. So the first thing we note, these texts are referring to very different ideas. Joel's passage had to do with the enemies of God's people, how that God would punish them for their opposition to His will and His way. Micah's text was in a prophecy, in fact, written about 750 years prior to the time of Christ's birth, and it spoke about the coming day when the mountain of the Lord's house, which is the church, would be established. 1 Timothy 3, verse, 5, verse 15. As we consider then that subtle but important distinction, notice something else with me about that Micah text. In that particular text in Micah, what was the point? Here, Micah gave note that the swords were to be beaten into plowshares. A sword was not to be employed. A plowshare is an item used by a farmer, something to be used in a time of peace, not a time of warfare. What was Micah's point? The point enunciated by both Micah and Isaiah was this. When that kingdom is established, it will in fact be a kingdom of peacefulness. It will not advance itself by military warfare. Those who are members of this kingdom will not expand its borders by military fighting one of another. It'll be a kingdom of peace. And hasn't the church ever been so, at least when it's the true church revealed by the God of heaven? You and I do not force by way of swords and bombs and bayonets for others to become members of the body. We proclaim the gospel and we preach it in its sincerity and urgency and we plead with people to respond but we do not force them. For it is still a true maxim that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You see, we appreciate then that God's kingdom, the church, is a kingdom of peacefulness. No wonder Paul could speak to the Romans in Romans 10:15 about the gospel of peace. And it's no wonder Jesus is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, verse 6. And isn't it true in Colossians 1 verse 20 that we read about the peace available through the cross? I've listed some other texts that help us appreciate this point. Think about the peaceful character of some of the ideas stated by Jesus himself. First in Matthew 5 verses 39 to 44, didn't Jesus there speak about the pressing character of the lovely features of those that would be his followers? On one occasion, he said, love your enemies. You see, if the church were founded on military, carnal, physical ideas, your enemy is someone to be defeated, conquered and beaten. But Jesus said, you love your enemies. Didn't he also say that in that same text? As God sends forth the sunshine and rain on both just and unjust, we should appreciate his loveliness toward all creatures in that way. It is an interesting fact that later in John 18, 36, 
Jesus, not long before he himself would leave this earth, ascend to the Father, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But my kingdom is not from hence. Jesus stated that if my kingdom were physical, if it were carnal, if it were of the things of this life, my servants would fight that I not be delivered to you, Pilate. But Jesus said, My kingdom is not from hence. You see, our Lord's kingdom is not based on military, physical things like that. No wonder Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through the operation of God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down every imagination and every thought that is opposed to the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ. You see, the weapons of our warfare simply are not carnal. That's all that Micah and Isaiah taught us in the days of old. Thus, can we not say these two passages don't contradict? They were addressed to different people discussing different contexts with different ideas. And therein lies the issue of virtually all alleged contradictions. Those who alleged them just have not read closely enough. They haven't allowed the context to identify who was speaking, to whom was it being spoken, and what was the circumstance being discussed. To look at that Old Testament one does set the stage for one in the New Testament. In fact, perhaps there's no single contradiction more often mentioned in the New Testament than this one. And yet as we turn to it and use our principles of effective Bible study... I believe we'll readily find that this supposed contradiction will vanish into thin air. It has to do with the element of baptism. As we proceed to consider it, let me submit that the ones we'll discuss will be in Mark 16, verse 16, as it is opposed to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. Again, I've placed for your consideration passages from each of them, the Mark 16 text is so very familiar. We remember that our Savior spoke very directly. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You and I can appreciate the directness of the Lord's statement. It's difficult to misunderstand that simple sentence, isn't it? First, go into all the world. When you're there, you preach the gospel to every creature. And then he went on to say that in regard to those to whom it's taught, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. However, those who do not even believe, much less refuse to be baptized, they will, of course, be utterly condemned. But as one looks at that text, it appears to stay very directly that baptism is an essential ingredient in the obedience to the gospel. It seems to state that baptism is not only important, it's necessary. But there are those who then, in terms of us seeking to understand the plan of salvation, will say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 1.17? Where there, Paul made this statement, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved it is the power of God. And thus there they say, well, what does that mean? Paul said that Christ did not send me to baptize. 
which at least in their mind seems to suggest that baptism is not necessary to salvation. What about that apparent contradiction? You may have discussed with some in a Bible study or heard someone perhaps on a radio program or maybe in an article say, well, here is a clear, straightforward statement that simply means we do not need to preach baptism so much. Apparently, Paul was not sent to baptize. But yet, apparently, as we noted a moment ago, Jesus did command it. So which is it? How do we deal with this supposed contradiction? Well, again, let us allow the Scriptures to speak for themselves. Let us turn to the Word of God and look back again carefully and clearly at each context and see if we can better appreciate these statements and what their meaning ultimately was. First of all, consider with me the context of the passage in Mark. The very bottom of this screen, you'll notice as we begin to look at that context, we remember that our Savior had been crucified on that old rugged cross. However, though He was buried on that Sunday morning, the first day of the week, our Lord arose by the power of God, Romans 1 verse 4. We notice that after arising, after His resurrection, He met with those apostles and He commissioned them. Those words that He gave in terms of that commission were the marching orders for His followers throughout all ages of time. You go into all the world. You preach the message concerning Me. You preach the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4, we learn that the central core ideas of the gospel are these. Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended to the Father. Thus, when we preach that, we appreciate the power behind it. Those who are receptive students of it, they will believe that and be immersed for the forgiveness of their sins. However, as we come to that text, the one in 1 Corinthians, notice a few statements, a few things that we need to appreciate about that one. As we consider it, we will, of course, be interested in carefully noting the circumstance. It would be fair to say that in terms of what Jesus preached there in Mark 16, we find that over and over stated in the book of Acts, as well as in the later books of the New Testament. On Pentecost, as was read for us earlier this evening, what did Peter preach when men did ask, men and brethren, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. One chapter later, when on Solomon's porch they demanded to know what should be done, what did Peter reply in verse 19 of that chapter? Repent and turn again that the times of refreshing from the Lord may come. Another reference to baptism. What did the eunuch hear from Philip in chapter 8 of the book of Acts? He heard of the necessity of baptism because the, field, the eunuch said, Here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Earlier in that chapter, in Acts 8 verse 12, what was it that was preached by Philip to the Samaritans? Baptism. What was it that the Corinthians were told in Acts 18 verse 8? Baptism. You see, all the while, we even remember that Paul himself was told that, wasn't he, in Acts 22 verse 16. And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? As one looks at these passages, they seem to line up so strongly in favor 
of what the Lord had taught in Mark 16. We must not, though, overlook this text in 1 Corinthians 1. What was Paul teaching? What was the circumstance? I'd invite you to turn there with me, and let's look at that more carefully. In 1 Corinthians 1, we remember that Paul was beginning his address to a congregation that had a number of difficulties and problems, a number of misunderstandings and difficulties, one of which was absolute division. You see, the church in Corinth was involved in a party atmosphere, a party spirit. And I mean that in the following way. There were schisms in the group. There were some of them that were of Paul, some were of Apollos, some were of Cephas, and some were of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 15. That is to say, there were some in Corinth who were giving allegiance to Peter, some to Paul, some to Apollos, others to Jesus. And it seems as though Paul was virtually beside himself in practical disbelief of how such a thing could have arisen. In fact, he went on to say, some were baptized in the name of various persons. Perhaps one was baptized in the name of Paul or another in the name of Peter. And Paul had to directly ask, into what name were you baptized? As Paul makes those statements, he very strongly makes note to them there are no divisions in the church. There are no denominational characteristics of the one body purchased by the Lord. That's why he would begin in verse 10 with these words. The powerful nature that there is to be one judgment, you're to be of one mind and one body. But having said that, we do read in verse 17 the character of where he said, Christ sent me not to baptize. With a basic idea of what we've seen so far, what's the meaning of that very obviously? The meaning is, Paul had just said, I'm thankful that I baptized so few of you in Corinth for fear lesting you would think that you were somehow greater and more spiritually minded because you were baptized in my name. That's all Paul meant by that. Christ sent me, me not to baptize. He is not saying baptism is unimportant. He is not saying that baptism is optional. He is not saying that baptism is non-essential. He's saying merely what's important is the preaching of the gospel and whoever does the baptizing, be it a person like Peter or Apollos or Paul or some other unnamed member of the congregation, that's what's important. And doesn't it remain so today? It's of no advantage or benefit to be baptized by a preacher per se. Any male member could easily perform a baptism. There would be no difficulty, nothing wrong at all with that. Paul said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The point is to proclaim the gospel. Who does the baptizing is less significant. The important thing is it's done. That's all that Paul meant. And that harmonizes so powerfully and beautifully with all the other statements concerning baptism in the sacred text of the Bible. In fact, think back to the role that Jesus played in baptism. Did Jesus himself do much baptizing? In John chapter 4, the text says he did not. His disciples rather did the baptizing rather than he. Isn't it an appreciation then that the one who does the baptizing does not confer any greater appreciation or benefit to the baptism. The important thing is it's Christ's blood that is contacted in that baptism. 
Who performs it is of far less importance. Let it be noted then, Paul never stated anything about baptism being unimportant. He never said anything about it being an optional matter. It's vital. It's a part of God's gospel plan of salvation. And when we appreciate the context, that supposed contradiction vanishes into thin air. There's nothing to it at all. It's an interesting thing to notice that then in conclusion, we might make the following statement. That there is no contradiction between this text and the text in Mark 16. They both, as they touch the character of the subject, they deal with a different context. They deal with a slightly different viewpoint. Paul was not lessening the importance of baptism. He was just stating that it wasn't important that he actually do the baptizing. Any male member in Corinth could easily have done so, and the baptism would have been perfectly agreeable in the sight of heaven. To say all of that is to say that many other examples could well be listed. We have looked at one from 1 Corinthians as it compares to Mark. We've also looked at one in Micah as it compared to Joel. You perhaps in your own study have noted many. But might we quickly say that the context, when we allow the Bible to speak, will always resolve those difficulties. Those men through the years who have thought that they have found mistakes and errors in God's Word, might we close our lesson by at least observing the following. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. And Jesus affirmed in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Those who have thought that they found contradictions are the ones that are mistaken. For God's word contains none. In fact, the Bible is itself absolutely true in every respect and in every idea. We have seen in this series the importance of using appropriately some Bible helps. We've also seen the importance of lexical emphasis, sentence structure, and the context of where that passage is found. As we continue in our studies in both Sundays and on Wednesday evening, we as good students will use the context to help us better appreciate what God has revealed and the, light and the eternal message of truth to be found in His Word. This very night, it may be that there's one or more within the sound of my voice that are in need of public response to the gospel call of invitation. We are called by the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. And as that gospel call is sent forth, all men are subject to it, Titus 2 verse 11. Have you responded in faith to that message? Have you allowed the word of God to touch your heart and to openly confess the reality of sin and the greatness of God's Son? He is the only way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, we must utilize the way of Jesus or we'll never make it to heaven at all. Have you then believed upon Christ Jesus as your Lord? Have you repented of your sins and confessed His sweet name as your Savior? Have you allowed yourself to be immersed in water, figuratively buried in water, if you will, so that your sins would be washed away? If you've done that, you have tasted the good word of God, Hebrews 6 verse 4, and you have learned the grandness and glorious nature of the church. Have you been faithful to that body? Have you been faithful to the Lord day by day? If you have not, then this would be a perfect opportunity to come back to that first love and to reinstate yourself by the power of God to a right relationship with Him. If we could assist you in doing that tonight, it'd be our privilege, it'd be our honor. 
the angels in heaven are ready to rejoice on your behalf. Luke 15, verses 1 and following. If we could help you tonight in any public way, let that be known even now. All together we stand and while we sing.